Alrighty, and we are back with Living the Guide Life today. This is Chance Pratt. And for those of you have that have been listening for a while now, you know that I took a little break. Um, just kind of had a lot going on, but looking to get back into doing more podcasts on a weekly basis. So hopefully we can keep that train rolling. Within the last year, it's just been very hectic, a lot of traveling changing of jobs um school and getting a new puppy so it's just been just been a blast of a year and can't complain too much but today we're gonna have on a very special guest he is the ceo at backcountry hunters and anglers land tawny and it's just a super fun conversation just talking about wildlife the outdoors and conservation so you guys should really enjoy this one. I know I did. It was a blast to get to just dig through his brain and see kind of what he thinks about, you know, all the issues that they deal with and, you know, what it takes to deal with those issues. So really great episode, a lot of fun. And uh, I know you guys will have a blast. Um, but yeah, nothing too crazy has been going on lately. I mean, went on a trip out west. My pup, she... Uh, had over 50 retrieves on our 10 man limit of honkers and ducks. Um, shot 103 that day, and she had well over 50 of those retrieves. So that was super exciting to see. She's very young still. She's only about a year and two months now. Um, but all the training that I've done this off season and going into this year, it's really starting to pay off, and it's super exciting to watch her in the field. So. It's been, you know, just a blessed year and I can't complain too much. Um, and so, yeah, we'll just get rocking with it. We are also brought to you by Pacific Calls, Mallard Bay, and Chasing Fall Outfitters. Like I said, uh, Pacific Calls has always got great stuff going on the market. Um, whether you're into calls or you're into some badass merch, go check it out. And Mallard Bay has been doing a great job of hooking up clientele for different outfitters around the country. So very exciting to see them grow throughout the past year. Um, and also for, you know, my own business, Chasing Fowl Outfitters, reach out to us if you're looking to get on a hunt for the next season. Um, it's going to be a good one. This one was a lot of fun. Um, little tough start early in the year but overall you know a really fantastic season and uh i can't can't explain enough on how much fun i had and now we'll have the young pup running full bore next year so it'll be a, even more fun um so enjoy this podcast and uh you guys have a good one Alrighty, and we are back with Living the Guide Life, and today we have Land Tony on with Backcountry Hunters and Anglers. He is the CEO over there and a fifth-generation Montanan. So, Land, how are we doing today? Chance, I'm doing great. Uh, I'm glad it's not as cold as it is here there in Minnesota, even though it's not this crazy cold there. Like, we've got kind of a, 
a 32 degree uh, warm spell that's happening. That's perfect. How much snow do you guys average out there a year? I've always wondered. And I wish I, I wish I could tell you like an exact thing. I think it's less than I was a kid, but everybody always says that, right? Like, oh, it yeah. snowed way more, and we had to walk uphill both ways to school. But um, no, we don't. Like this year was supposed to be, you know, we're supposed to get a ton more snow, and that has not materialized yet. So we got a bunch of snow early. Uh, it's never left, which is great this year. Uh, but no, we. We, we don't get a lot of snow, but enough to, you know, keep our rivers flowing for the trout, enough to ski a little bit in the winter. Yeah. I heard that it helps with the antler growth, too, on some of the big game animals with more snow. Interesting. More snow does. Yeah. Interesting. I almost would think that, like, it would put stress on those animals because it would, like, they'd have to work harder to find food. Yeah. But, you know, I'm, I I got a wildlife biology degree at the University of Montana here, but like I haven't done that for over 20 years. So uh, it's one to look into for sure. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's just something. Don't quote me on it, obviously, but that's something I heard <laughs> that I was like, huh, that's kind of a different way to look at it. And I knew that you had a little background in it, so I wanted to see what you had to say. Yeah, I, I don't remember that being a thing, and I think I would. But I'm not saying, again, that it's not true. I just have never heard that. Yeah. How is uh how's the season been so far this fall? You know, you? like for me, uh got out early for grouse with the dog. Um and then uh on opening day of rifle shot a nice whitetail buck. Nice. Um and then uh chased elk around for four weeks, uh was in them, never killed an elk though. And then on the very last day I killed a doe about 30 yards from where I killed that buck. I call it the grocery store. It's this amazing piece of like public land um, that's interspersed with private land. And uh, so that part went well, then shifted over to waterfowl and uh, waterfowl season when I've been out has been amazing, but uh, I've only, I think I've only gone out like seven or eight times waterfowl hunting. Um, but I just had my last one on uh, Saturday for the season. Cause we shut down this next weekend and I'm going to be traveling um, so I'm not going to be able to hunt, but yeah. it was amazing. Like we had a flight of 35 birds come in, acted the way they wanted to, and uh, we could have shot better, uh, but the birds cooperated. And I will tell you, that was amazing for me. It's just uh, I love trekking those birds and watching them, you know, do what they're supposed to and then putting a couple of them in the freezer. Yeah. Are you guys mainly shooting mallards? Mostly mallards. Like uh, that day we shot mallards. There was one ring neck. Um, and then uh, a couple teal. Okay. Um, we get some uh, gadwalls here. We get some widgeon here. Early, we'll have like cinnamon teal, maybe like a wood duck, but those wood ducks like bug out pretty early. Yeah. That was one thing I was surprised on. I went and worked at my buddy's ranch like three years ago out in Montana, and there were cinnamon teal swimming in the ponds, and I didn't even realize they were, they were up in Montana. Yeah, I mean, they leave really early, but what a gorgeous, uh, what a gorgeous oh, yeah. bird and um, good table fare as well. Yeah. And for the elk, were you chasing with a bow or a gun? With the gun. And so, like, the first spot we went to, uh, we didn't actually get into elk there. We spent three days. And it was just, like, we got a ton of snow early, and it was super cold, and it was super windy. And uh, the spot that we had hopes and dreams for was the wrong spot. And we spent a lot of time looking for them. Um, but then after that, it just, I had a cow tag too. And I just, okay. things just did not work out the way they should have. Um, but we were in them, but that was all rifle. 
Yeah, fair enough. And for elk, for residents, how does that work? Is it over the counter or do you have to go for a lot? You guys got to you guys apply. Yeah, you guys got to apply. Um, and like that's coming up. I don't quote me on that, but I think it's like February. Um, okay. You have to have applications in, but like for it's very liberal, I would say, and a great opportunity to come hunt here. Obviously, that's just over the counter stuff. And then you have I mean, just the general license, and then you have special draws, which are much harder um, yeah. to get. But um, there's a lot of opportunities for out of state outcomes here in Montana. Yeah. Because I know it's not like Wyoming where it's the preference points over there. It's just you put in, yeah. right? Yeah, we in, yeah for the majority of it. And what's nice about here too is that whether you've been putting in for one year or fifteen years, you still got a chance. And so um, I like our system here. And uh, and yes, there's a much more general season that, that uh, I would say I would say hunters in particular are eligible for. Yeah. Well, yeah. What would you prefer? Would you prefer the preference points or the just regular for non-resident hunting out of state? Like, let's say if you go to Wyoming or. I mean, I think everybody should have a chance. I think that's part of like the, you know, I mean, I think, yeah, when you have like, you know, the way it works here is that you've been putting in, you, you know, for 15 years you get, I'm not sure how that scales up, but you at least get an extra chance for every year you know, that you've been putting in. So to me, like that person that is again, putting in for their first time still has a chance. I think that's important just to, you know, why would you apply with the idea that you might get a chance after 15 years? Let's give that chance from the very beginning, um, yeah. even though those odds might be really difficult. Yeah. Yeah, I like that theory. I mean, I've been, I have a bunch of preference points out in Wyoming because I got lucky with a mentor telling me to go put in early. So I got sure. lucky with that. Then I still yet to go out there and hunt them. Hopefully next year will. But I think it'd be a lot better just to have, you know, give everyone the opportunity. Yeah, I mean, I think you have to manage, you know, how many people are on the ground. But I think that, you know, again, just the opportunity to have the chance, right? Like, and yeah. like, it's not having to wait a long time. I think it's important. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, you're talking about shooting some deer on a mix of public and private. Are you doing a lot yeah. of public land hunting out there in Montana? Because, I mean, you guys have so much public land. It's such great public lands up there compared to like Minnesota. Yeah, you're you know, like, it's funny because I think people think maybe we have more than we do. Like, only 35% of the state is uh, public. And so that means 65% is private. So overwhelming majority is uh, private, but we have such a large state. And then where I live here in the western Montana, we have a ton and ton of public lands, mostly in the form of national uh, forests. And so um, I do the majority of my hunting on public land. But like in this spot, it's a part of our block management program. And so block management is public access to private lands. And what they did is they looked at this area that kind of had public and private interspersed and said, let's make this all kind of under one kind of hunting, I would say, uh, management plan. And so the private landowners get paid a little bit of money. Uh, and then we, the public, get to go hunt both that public and that private. And so we have to continually look at our on X all the time to see, you know, where we are. You just have the general idea that that whole area is open to you. So that, that creates like a, a I think a, a situation that is good for the landowners and it's also good for us public hunters or just hunters in general. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. And on the topic of public land, I wanted to ask you a little bit more about the corner crossing scenario on how that's yeah. turning yeah. out. Yeah. So for folks that don't know corner crossing just in general as an issue. So corner crossing, you know, if you think about 
public land, if you look at a checkerboard, let's say, black and red, think about all the public land is red and all the private land is black. Corner crossing is just our ability and our want to go from public land to public. And so that red to red, let's say, in this, in this scenario. And there's been some ambiguity about that, in particular in Wyoming. And uh, there was some hunters from Missouri, we call them the Missouri Four, I call them Missouri Four, I don't know if they really like that reference or not. Um, but uh, they talked to the local uh, fish and game warden, they talked to the sheriff about wanting to access a piece of public land from the corner. And then they built this contraption that was like a bridge over the top. And uh, they ultimately accessed this public land, they shot a bull elk and on their way back, they started getting harassed by the landowner. And said that they were trespassing. And they said, man, we we talked to the warden, we talked to the sheriff, we're good to go. So that landowner, well, his ranch manager calls the warden, calls the sheriff. They're like, yep, he's legal. Ranch manager doesn't like his answer. He ends up calling the county attorney 18 times. County attorney finally acquiesces and charges these guys with trespass. That case goes to criminal court. All four get off of criminal trespass. So free and clear, now that landowner who is a multi, multi, multi-millionaire, he's like almost a billionaire, is from North Carolina, uh, is suing them uh, for, for uh, um, in a libel suit, for, um, or civil suit, excuse me, for $7 million, like $7 million. And like that to me is like, one, it's bullying behavior, and that's kind of been the, the par for the course with this whole situation. But he's basically saying that uh, you're reducing the opportunity, reducing the value of his ranch because now people can access public land that is ours, he says, was de facto his. And that's something that's gone unsaid a lot here in the West for a long time. He's actually saying it out loud. And so that case is going forward. Um, You know, we raised overnight, and I've been saying overnight, like in a couple of weeks, like 80 grand to defend these guys. I think that defense is all the way up to 115. So we had the entire criminal case covered. Now we're looking at the civil case. We feel very confident that won't probably be looked at until late this spring, so May and June. Um, But ultimately, it's in federal court, which we think is a good place to have this conversation. And we feel like we're going to get the same uh, results as we did in criminal court. But that one is yet to be uh, determined. And then there's a legislative session going on right now in Wyoming. And uh, and there uh, we are, um, uh, you know, we are looking at trying to stop anything that like tries to make corner crossing illegal. And then also promoting things of the pieces of legislation that could potentially clarify that it is legal. But right now, it's kind of a little bit of a gray area, but um, the Missouri four got off. And so that may be, uh, you know, a thing for people to think about, but always know where you are and uh, make sure that uh, your Onyx is up to date. Yeah. Yeah. I saw it was like invading the airspace, which I thought of the Onyx video, I'm pretty sure, where they took the helicopter in to public. And so yeah. I was like, what's the difference between that? Yeah, they're I think both, again, yeah, like, and why? Why are my shoulders? Why are my shoulders violating airspace? And where does the airspace stop? And I think, yeah, that's a big part of the criminal case, and that's conversations that are happening at legislative level. We're trying to clarify: this is not like. I think we should increase fines, you know, for trespassing on private land. To be totally honest, I think that like yeah. we should all know where we are, especially with an onyx in your pocket these days. 
Oh, but like at the same time, we're not like asking for access to private land. All we are asking for is access from public land to public. And so I think, you know, it's a pretty populist issue. People get it in about two seconds, but there's folks that don't want us to have access because they've had um, exclusive uh, access to uh, these public lands and acted like they were private, you know, for a while now. So that one is uh, yet to be totally determined, but it's kind of exciting. Yeah. Has that ever happened before where it's came up the corner crossing or is this the first big corner crossing has been talked about for a long time. And like, there's, you know, we've had stuff here in Montana where there's been people in that gray area and people have been uh, charged with trespassing or not. Um, This is the first time I think it's caught the attention like this, uh, you know, um, as much as it has. And then also this civil case is probably, that's the first time I've ever heard of a civil case, especially with the damages up to $7 million. Yeah. A lot of money. Yeah, a lot of money. And, uh, um, you know, again, like I think it's a bullying tactic. You think about the harassment that happened from the ranch manager when these guys were coming out, they did the right thing. You think about that ranch manager, whoever called like the county attorney 18 times. Then you think, you know, that finally led to them being charged. Now you think about the $7 million. What they're trying to do is put a chill on anybody else that would try to attempt this. and I think that, you know, without, you know, us and Meat Eater and Randy Newberg and others talking about this, and now that we're talking about it in your podcast, like that's like the job is to make sure this is in front of the people and so we can push back. And I think that's exactly what's happening. Yeah. Yeah. That's great to hear. Yeah. Cause how long has it been going on for? I mean, corner crossing has been an issue. I mean, this particular case yeah, this- has only been going on since last fall. Okay. Um, and that's when they were charged. And then the criminal case went to court this last spring. They got off. And then the civil case started after that. So mm-hmm. this is not, you know, we're in a year and a half or about a, you know, yeah, a year and a half right now. Um, but uh, again, like knock on wood, confident about where we are. Yeah. Is this one of the harder cases you guys have had, had to deal with? You know, I think we in general, uh, legal action is the last thing that we want to do. And, you know, again, remember the way I described this. This is not us suing a landowner. This is not us, like, uh, uh, you know, pursuing any kind of legal action. Besides, I guess we did submit an amicus brief uh, to the civil case, which is like a friend of the court. But we're just paying for these guys, you know, to like help pay for their legal fees because, you know, they did everything right. They, they built this contraption that was like a bridge, you know, which is absolutely awesome Yeah. to try to, you know, really make sure they didn't step on the, on any part of private land. They did everything right. And now they're getting punished for it. And we want to make sure that, you know, not only them, but others knew that you do everything right. And that we will defend you when it comes to access. Yeah, absolutely. And what's been some other like, big cases you guys have been dealing with, like what would be the next top two big cases you guys have had to deal with this year? Yeah. So, I mean, I think, and I'd almost call those issues, right? I mean, I think like legal action, I mean, legal action again is, and maybe I'll talk about the two though, because they're two gigantic ones. Legal action. We've only done, I've been at work here for 10 years. We've been an organization uh, for almost, uh, what is it? Like almost it's 20 years um, this year is that, you know, that's, or I guess it's next year, excuse me, but like, like we have only done a handful of legal cases. Like I, I'd yeah. say like a half dozen. 
We're engaged in one right now that went all the way to the Supreme Court down to Mexico, and that was over stream access. And so shorthand, you had some landowners that petitioned the state to shut down a stretch of river uh, that was available to the public. State said, yes, like you have a case, shut down those stretches. We, along with the New Mexico Wildlife Federation and the Adobe Whitewater Club, sued the state and said that is not legal. This is like access. You have no right to take that access away. And all the way to the Supreme Court, not the Supreme Court uh, return access to uh, those two stretches of river, but they also uh, return like the, uh, the access there in New Mexico to look more like Montana and less like Wyoming. So like access at high water mark, wherever there's a navigable stream, where in Wyoming, you can float a river, but if you uh, touch a rock in the middle, you're trespassing, you can't get out on the sides either. And so it really harms access. So that one's awesome. We won that all the way to the Supreme Court in New Mexico. Now those same landowners are petitioning uh, the U.S. Supreme Court. And um, the U.S. Supreme Court, we'll see if they take it up or not. We've got the Stanford Law Review that is helping us out with that defense. Um, but that could be one for people to watch. Uh, you know, only I think 1% or something of cases that go in front of the Supreme Court are even heard. And this has been a stream access has been decided at a state level for a long time. And so I think that they will not take this case on. Um, that was in New Mexico. Lawsuit here in Montana um, is around uh, a private landowner shutting down a trail that was open to the public, has been part of uh, the public domain since the early 1900s. And they shut a trail down here in Montana. And so we actually sued the Forest Service over that because the they didn't do their job um, keeping that trail open and allowed those private landowners to kind of shut that trail down. So we're suing the Forest Service over that one. Um, that one is being appealed right now. Um, but again, like we've only had a handful of those uh, uh, in our tenure. I would say issues that are important, like top two, top three. I think that Recovering America's Wildlife Act has been trying to get moved through Congress out in Washington, D.C. for a while now. We were very close before the Christmas break. Um, we just There just wasn't an opportunity to find floor time. And, and so that basically, Recovering America's Wildlife Act is how do we keep common species common and then these species that are potentially going on the endangered species list, how do we keep them off the endangered species list or out of the emergency room that is the endangered species list that costs a lot of money and takes regulation. So the idea is spend a little money on the front end. Ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure and spend that money on the back end. Not to have those regulations on the back end. At the same time, we're making sure that our biological communities are whole. So these aren't you know, mostly animals that we're chasing around or trying to catch or kill and cook. But they're animals that are important to like that whole biological community. And um, and so, you know, that is a big one. Uh, you know, a lot of support around that piece. I think that another one would be the National Grassland Conservation Act. And really, this is um, it's modeled after North American Wetland Conservation Act. And that North American Wetland Conservation Act really was put in place to do conservation on private lands to protect waterfowl habitat or to enhance waterfowl habitat. Private landowner does the right thing. They're protecting the wetland or enhancing the wetland. They get paid for it. Simple terms. National Grassland Act would be exactly that except for grassland habitat. And, and so that's something we've partnered with Pheasants Forever with in particular, but also National Wildlife Federation, the Theodore Roosevelt Conservation Partnership, Ducks Unlimited, host of other organizations. 
and grasslands and, and private land. Why does BHA care about that? Well, private land in particular, I described to you earlier, this interface between public land and private land, like conservation work that you're doing on private land benefits public land, benefits the species that really don't know fences. So that part is important. I think the grasslands in particular, there are most endangered, uh, uh, um, I guess, uh, what would I say, like ecotype uh, in the world, but also here in the United States, like the amount of grasslands that we lose and have lost is like staggering. And so uh, this grassland back, like as, 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 as one that we support and uh, are supporting with our, you know, our partners that normally, um, you know, work more on private land than we do. So that's a big one uh, that has been introduced uh, and will be introduced again this next Congress. I didn't really get much legs last year. Um, last one, I guess I would say would be in your neck of the woods, uh, super big priority for not only our organization, but for me in particular, it's just permanent protection for the boundary waters. You know, it's such an important landscape. You may know there's this mine that's proposed a quarter mile south of, of the boundary waters. All that water flows north there. Yeah. It's a copper sulfide mine. If it leaches, it will, will not if, like there's never been a copper sulfide mine that hasn't leached uh, bad chemicals into the water, surrounding waters. And so we're not against all mining, but you know, a quarter mile south, there were the most visited wilderness, one of the most pristine habitats in yeah. the world dip your cup in the water and drink it straight out of the lakes. Like that is an important landscape. And so um, I know that Betty McCullough uh, had a bill um, that, uh, that was moving through Congress last year. Um, obviously the house is flipped. That's going to be a little bit tougher for her this round, but I think there's ways to you know pass legislation that permanently protects the boundary water. It's protected as a wilderness inside the boundaries, um, yeah. but outside we need to protect the watershed. Basically is what we need to do. So, that is that's as far as a landscape that's a major major priority for us and me personally because i've been there three or four like three times now and once with my family and uh such a such a special place have you been to the boundary waters i'm guessing you have i have not surprisingly oh I've man not. you gotta go chance i know go. i know we're going to make a trip it was two years ago and then it got canceled and so i was hoping to try to make a trip out there this summer because i've just heard so many so many awesome things it's phenomenal. It's the most visited wilderness in the United States for a reason. Yeah. Most wilderness, you got to climb a steep ridge and then you're finally into the wilderness. So it's very prohibitive for people to get in there. You know, I mean, I think yeah. the, you have to be able bodied for sure to get in. Uh, the boundary waters, anywhere from like five to 95 can get in there, right? Because you're going in in the canoe. Yeah. And then, yes, you have to do these portages, but like it is, it's, I mean, the trips I've taken have been absolutely phenomenal. And I would say like uh, inspiring. Um, and I don't want to overplay like life changing, but in a lot of ways, like I, I will never, <laughs> ever forget about that landscape. It's, it's an amazing place. Yeah, I've been way up north, but I haven't been to the Boundary Waters. But I mean, everyone just says it's a world class. Go camping, you're fish frying, walleyes right on the shore. Absolutely. You can't beat it. We and had so, a, I was there. Last time I was there, I had I was there with my family, and uh, we had a pair of otters that we saw at probably 300 yards that swam towards us, and like ended up being like 15 feet away. We're chattering back and forth, and then like swam on, and so you know that was awesome for me. But my kids uh, got to see that too, and so that's a memory that you can never take away from our family, which uh, is part of what uh, um, I think all these special places is about is making memories with the people that you love most. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, that's that's a massive reason that I got into 
hunting was for my grandpa and waterfall and deer hunting and all that kind of stuff and conservation and whatnot all through him because the next generation or generation before that or whatever it always just passes on yeah yeah no it's like i think that uh what is it doug Dern out of wisconsin it's not it's not it's not our time it's just our turn you know yeah. like it's just like you know like this is like you just described these things that we have the opportunities to participate in now none of that happened by accident now that's like people like Theodore Roosevelt or like Aldo Leopold, who's the father of game management or, you know, Sig Olson up in like, you know, the boundary waters that helped write about, inspire people about the boundary waters and the thousands of people that we don't know the names of that have helped bring all this to us. And so um, I would say that I totally agree that it's our time to pass that on. And then somebody else is going to have to do it after us. You know, it's not, this work is never done. Oh, absolutely. And I know you're a big theor- Theodore Roosevelt guy. So I got to hear your yeah. favorite quote from him. I mean, there's one that's on my signature uh, that I use all the time that I admire the man. And then my mom made me add woman. That wasn't part of his original quote, but it's a totally good addition. But I admire the man and woman who take the next step, not those that theorize about the 200th. And to me, not like we shouldn't be planning, but we got to take action all the time. Right. And Roosevelt was such a man of action. And he kind of almost just like willed things to happen. So that's my favorite quote from him. And there's the man in the arena. I'm sure you've heard that that quote, like, you know, or I'll, I'll uh, simplify that one. But it's like, you know, it's like man in the arena with like dust and blood on his face, you know, knows the toils of what a battle is. He may lose, but understands it like he was in the fight. Like, again, that's a horrible way to like paraphrase that quote. But that one is really awesome. And the one that I, I came across the other day that I'd heard before, uh, but was uh, do what you can with what you have at the time. Right. And so that's a very good, like thinking about hunting and fishing. We do all that kind of stuff all the time. Right. Like when you're out in the woods, you got to you have a certain plan when you go into it, but it changes pretty quickly and you got to figure out what to do with that. And I think that not only is that, you know, a good mantra for the woods, but I think it's also a really good mantra for life, um, you know. BHA right now, you know, business wise, like, you know, do what we can with what we have, right? At this moment in time, we can't think about what we used to have or think about what we're going to have in the future. It's like really right now. And again, I think that just, again, like, solidifies that mantra of his of like action, 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 which he was a man of for sure. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, with you being the current CEO at BHA, what is your biggest success story in your opinion? being there? I mean, that's a really good question that I could think about in different ways. I would say that none of the successes that I have had personally have come without a team effort. And whether that is from, you know, my colleagues that I get to work with every day uh, here at BHA, whether that's partners on the outside, or most importantly, I would say the volunteers and the members of BHA that really make stuff happen. I think that Oh, man, the most. I mean, I think the one that's probably going to have the largest impact that I've had the pleasure to be a part of was a passage of the Great American Outdoors Act, not this summer, but the summer before, that that made the Land and Water Conservation Fund permanent funding at $900 million a year. This is the number one access uh, program that we have in this country at a federal level been woefully underfunded since it was passed in 1964 
Uh, there's, you know, it's been used in every single county in America. And so it provides access for hunting, fishing, but also like in these smaller communities, fishing pools, like it creates opportunities really what it does. And, and so uh, the role that we played in education around that effort of hunters and anglers, and then ultimately uh, before it passed Congress, um, I'll be proud of that. You know, I'll be sitting on the porch, you know, when I'm in my 80s, sipping the iced tea and, and, and really remember that one in a positive way. Um, that was proactive, not playing defense, um, that had long lasting effects far beyond just kind of the passage of that legislation. So that's what I'm probably most excited about. Um, was been, been proud to be a part of it, BHA, though there is a long list, I would say. Um, and again, all by uh, our partners, uh, our membership, and our volunteer leaders. Yeah. And how did you originally get to BHA? <laughs> That's a good question. I think that, you know, I don't know how far I could go back, but I think that, you know, as a young kid in my early 20s, I was messing around. I uh, And then my father passed away and I was actually 19 when that happened. My, my parents were involved in conservation and my dad was the first lawyer for the Elk Foundation. And, and so like when he passed away, it was a huge moment in my life and I was just monkeying around and I was not like, I wasn't a bad person, but I just wasn't focused yet. And when he passed away, I kind of got my poop in a group and, and, and really wanted to be involved in conservation. So I got a wildlife biology degree at the University of Montana here in Missoula. Uh, from there, I came out of school and I painted houses for a summer and realized I didn't want to do that for the rest of my life and got a job volunteering for the Theodore Roosevelt Conservation Partnership. That worked into a full-time job. I worked for them for three and a half years, did some awesome work, um, especially on uh, public access to private land programs. And then went to work for the National Wildlife Federation for eight and a half years. I worked in Montana, Idaho, North Dakota, and South Dakota when I started. And then went on to run their national uh, sportsman's campaigns before I left. What I'm most proud about there would be uh, the work that I did on restoring the Mississippi River Delta down in Louisiana. Mm -hmm. uh, endangered landscape has been since the 1920s. But that oil spill happened, um, you know, that that the deep horizon oil spill killed 18 people. It was super tragic. Uh, but the money that was generated from that created an opportunity to help restore that, that marsh down there that has been dying again since the 1930s. Because they've basically cut that river and the freshwater sediment that comes from Minnesota. I've been, I went on that boundary water trip with my family. I went to the headwaters of the Mississippi that you can like jump across. Oh yeah. But that water, yeah, have you been there? Yeah. yeah. That's pretty rad. It's pretty rad. And so, uh, um, you know, that water that starts there goes to the Mississippi, but it's supposed to feed that marsh with all the fresh water and sediment that had been cut off for a long time for flooding reasons in particular. And so um, that marsh needs it to live. And, you know, it was losing about a football field every hour. Now that has totally changed and we're building back marsh because of that deep water horizon spill. It was called the Restore Act. We ended up getting like $18 billion with a B. Uh, for conservation um, and back to that landscape. And so, um, you know, that job with National Wildlife Federation set me up and all the experiences to, you know, take over here almost 10 years ago. And, you know, at that point, we were a pretty small organization, but I had some experience in building things and campaigns. And, you know, now we're in a different place where we, you know, we have chapters in every single state besides uh, Hawaii and uh, uh, Delaware. 
And uh, now we're starting to go up into Canada. We have chapters in British Columbia, Alberta, and Yukon territories. And, and the coverage that we have compared to like when I first started, like, and that's been built by the people. Like, it's just phenomenal. Like, and that's yeah. just people stepping up. You know, you got to be that speech from Roosevelt, like in the arena. Like, you got to be in the arena. And I think our people take that. Uh, they take that to heart and uh, you know, whatever that means in your place at that time, um, people are stepping up all the time. That's helped grow us as BHA. Yeah. Yeah. That's some, that's some great accomplishments. You guys have done some really phenomenal stuff. Uh, and we're just getting started. And by the way, again, that was done by, you know, a lot of people. Um, but uh, you know, I have a saying that I use a lot. That's not unique to me, but you're either at, at the table or you're on the menu. You know, and yeah. when you're at the table, uh, we can help make decisions. It doesn't mean we're going to win every single one of those decisions. But boy, if we're not, we're losing um, almost guaranteed. And so uh, it's about stepping up, being in the arena or being at the table, making sure that we uh, try to perpetuate this amazing thing that we have going forward. Yeah. Yeah. And is there anything that was like, not like I'd say regret, but like a loss that really kind of haunts you that you guys had to deal with? Ooh, that's a really good one. Um, it's a really good one. I think that hmm, loss that we had to deal with. I think. I mean, I'll talk about a recent one. That that recent one I talk about with Recovering America's Wildlife Act. Like that yeah. was greased through the House, through the Senate, bipartisan. Like Republicans and Democrats supporting it. We had this chance at the end of Congress this last year, and they call it during the lame duck. So after the election, that time between like first week of November and you know before they go on Christmas break, and I just did not get done. And so I don't know with the way this new Congress has started as if much is going to happen. And so is that a two years that we got to wait? Is that three? I don't know. But that was right on the tips of our fingers. And again, like tons of work went into that. That's a huge loss right now. I think we can turn it into a win, but uh, it's a big loss. And, um, you know, I think just to reiterate that, like, when these things are in front of us, it's so important that we take action now because who knows, you know, what the future holds. But that's a, that's a big one um, besides, you know, maybe some landscape level things. Um, but, uh, yeah, that's a big one. Yeah. Yeah. And we only got a few more minutes left on the yeah. Zoom call here. So I wanted to just make sure what's the biggest thing that you want people to pay attention to going through with, you know, the next year over at BHA. Yeah. So if you're an armed forces uh, member that's listening to this, like pay attention to this one big time. We started a, a initiative called the armed forces initiative within BHA. Um, basically it helps like serve, um, active duty so active duty is being moved around a lot like if a kid from montana like me gets thrown over to north carolina um for uh my next duty i have no idea what the rules are i don't know what the regulations are i have no idea what about the species i'm gonna be hunting besides maybe ducks that are very similar and so a lot of people are stepping away from hunting and fishing during that time when they're in service and this is a way for them to uh learn the regulations, have a community when they show up that's a hunting community at these bases or installations. Um, so active duty, they're also doing, you know, I think part of the, what is so successful with that program is folks know how to use guns, but they may never have hunted before. And so teaching them hunting skills, getting them out hunting uh, is important. Doing, you know, these, these installations, bases, 
have a, a huge footprint and have a lot of hunting and fishing opportunities on them. And I think a lot of people don't know that. And so a lot of our folks are doing like uh, uh, stewardship projects on these uh, bases. And so check that out on the veteran side, like very similar to a lot of groups, um, really, you know, trying to get veterans out to find uh, solace in the outdoors. But ultimately, that's not a one and done for us. Like that's like a building a community and then helping them, uh, you know, not only have that community, but help, you know, bring other people into the fold that are veterans that haven't been experienced that. So very similar. Maybe you've never hunted mule deer in Montana. We can help you do that. If you've never hunted turkeys in your life, we can help you do that. It's really like, I think, um, uh, connecting those people and then ultimately, you know, having them engage in conservation efforts, whether that's stewardship or advocacy. So Armed Forces Initiative, super exciting. The one that I think everybody needs to pay attention to is uh, this bill that got introduced last June. And it's from a representative, Representative Clyde from Georgia. He introduced this bill to try to divorce uh, Pippin-Robertson dollars from conservation. Those who know what Pippin-Robertson is, it was established back in the 1920s. Basically, that was when the you know, whole Dust Bowl was starting to happen. It's that like, utilizing excise taxes from uh, guns and ammunition to pay for conservation. Fully realized today, this last year was over a billion dollars. That billion dollars goes to state agencies, tribal entities to manage conservation uh, and hunting at a state level. Without it, like our state agencies cannot function, like period. And, and so this congressman introduced this bill. He happens to be a gun shop owner. So there's some money involved here. When I talk to hunters all over the country, they're very proud of the, of the historic and current contributions they've made to contribution just by buying a gun, just by buying like ammunition. And, and so ill-fated idea did not get anywhere uh, last year, but Clyde, after we killed it amongst some other folks, he he started talking about it. He's in the house, was started talking about other house members. And then now it's talking about the Senate. And so this bill will be introduced again. So just pay attention to it. um, And, uh, Representative Clyde, again, is his last name. You can email him today, call him on the phone, 202-224-3121 is the capital switchboard. That's not his direct number. Say you want to talk to Representative Clyde, tell him not to introduce this bill again because you're against it. It is like fundamentally takes away the structure that funds conservation, in particular state agencies in this country right now. So that's one to pay attention to. I think we need, we didn't do a good enough job as a community beating it to death this last time. I think that's important when bad legislation comes up. So when this comes up again, like just people be vigilant. Uh, you know, if you're a member of BHA, you'll get uh, you'll get um, uh, notice about this. Uh, but really, this is when we need to push back on hard, and this time push back hard enough so it doesn't come back. You know, maybe it's another decade before it comes back because it probably will come back. But we need to put it in the dirt where it deserves to be. Yeah, absolutely. And how can people get more in tune with what's going on at BHA? Totally. So uh, become a member. Uh, it's $35 a year. You know, you spend that, uh, uh, you spend more than that on a dinner, I would say, out right now. You spend more than that on um, a couple of beers with your buddies. Um, but it's $35 a year. You get our magazine that comes out four times a year. And then what that also does, it connects you to our grassroots activism. And and so not only to things that are going on in Congress, which we talked a lot about today out in Washington, D.C., also connects you to your local chapter those local chapters are working on issues you know with the state legislatures as i've talked about a little bit they're working um with the state fish and game associations like all these organizations and so to me uh you know i think that that's like a 
um, you know, that's the way you get connected. And then like there's stewardship projects around the ground. If you don't, you know, advocacy isn't your thing. Like we're helping clean up, you know, areas we're helping remove fences. We're doing um, repairing and restoration efforts. And so the best way is just to go to backcountryhunters.org and you can sign up and then we'll get you connected at a federal kind of national level. And then also you'll get connected to your local chapter to be able to do stuff on the ground. Perfect. And I have to ask you as well, have you gotten a sheep tag in Montana yet? <laughs> yeah, I uh, I drew a sheep tag uh, for Rock Creek, which is just like 20 minutes east of Missoula. Yep. The actual area that I hunted was, it's 20 miles from Missoula, but then you drive up this dirt road, 30 miles, and you hunt up there. I hunted for 18 days and then ultimately uh, killed a ram. Um, and this area had had... Uh, uh, pneumonia in it and so that herd had gotten in trouble before this uh i was one of two tags we shot our rams are basically identical twins it's not a gigantic ram but uh shot a ram and uh this year they didn't have the season because that that population is in such trouble but yes i did get a sheep tag i'm waiting my seven years right now before i can even apply again for the ram tag but in the meantime i love the taste of that meat so much that i'm willing to blow my points on a ewe which i didn't get last year or this year um, but I'm going to apply for it again just because I think it's so delicious. And maybe I'll get a, you know another ram tag someday because they're amazing to hunt, amazing, iconic species. Yes, I did get one. I did shoot one, and it was damn delicious. Yeah, what does the meat taste like? You know, like, I was talking to somebody, and the way I, it's like, like elk probably, but like sweeter. I don't know. Like, and it was preferred meat for like, you know, like mining camps and stuff when Montana was being, um, kind of uh developed back in the day or people were coming out here and and i don't know if it was preferred meat because it was easy you know to get those sheep like once you find them like they're yeah. fairly easy to hunt but finding the right one is, is very difficult um but uh no they, they taste it's kind of sweet but it's, it's it's really good yeah yeah i know that rock creek herd um we go fly fish over there in the summer okay yeah. Got to keep that. Got to keep kidding, that edited out. No, I mean, like, it's a, it's a, it's a blue ribbon trout stream, and like, I think people know about it. But no, it's a, it's a very special place for sure. And um, that's where I chase around elk. That's where I have my cow tag this year. And okay. The thing that I love about that place and the hunting, you got to do about two, two and a half thousand feet of elevation to get up on these benches. Once you get up on these yeah. benches, then you're into the elk, and like, it's awesome. So it keeps a lot of people away. The sheep were probably about. I don't know, about 1500 as far as like from like where you start. I'm not talking about the yeah. actual elevation, but yeah. where you start. And uh, they're in that band a lot. So um, it's just a special place and wild. It's got a wilderness on one side, the Welcome Creek Wilderness. It's got that dirt road that goes all the way along the creek. But I mean, you know, it. it's a uh, it's a, a, a very special place. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. We woke up, woke up to about 15 rams and use like right next okay. to our tents. So you guys were down low, I'm guessing. Those herds are splitting too. And that herd yeah. that's like on there's a they're on the road all the time. Yeah, it's it's awesome because you get to see them. But no, it's a pretty special place. What time of year were you guys there? Uh we go beginning of August. Okay. The, so. the hoppers, like you're 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 fishing hoppers at that point, probably. Oh yeah. Yeah, I love hopper yeah. fishing, so that's usually why we go about that time. Yeah, big brown trout and a bunch of cutthroats, native cutthroats are in there and some rainbows as well. Those uh, cutthroats, though, man, I, I don't know. My son caught his first fish on a fly rod there this year. and oh, um, nice. Super special place to me and my family for a long time. Yeah, and they got uh, bull trout. 
too. They do. They do. They got the bull trout, those bull trout August. They're in those deep, deep, deep holes. You're not yeah. supposed to target them at all, but you get yeah. to see them once in a while. You'll catch a smaller trout and all of a sudden it becomes a little bit heavier. And then you pull in a, a bull trout that's hooked onto your trout that you caught. So that's what um, happened. So, yeah, so it's cool. Yeah, really? That's yeah. awesome. Yeah. Because, cool. yeah, we saw like they had the sign there for bull trout and everything. And then we're like, oh, cool. And yeah, you can't like target them or whatever. And then we had one. Yeah in just a deep hole with a streamer brown trout came out and then here it comes from underneath so, a cool site. yeah no i'm i'm excited uh that you've been there and it's a uh, it's a cool place and bull trout you know i think the connectivity for bull trout that's a really important stream to them but you know the restoration efforts that are going on around bull trout right now are really phenomenal and hopefully that's a species that we can speaking of recovering america's wildlife act that's hopefully that's a species that we can keep out of endangered species like emergency room and and really keep hold for the i think for the uh you know for that species in general but also like if they did get listed you know and like a full way uh we'd be in pretty big trouble as far as regulations go so right now yeah. we can't target them but like can you imagine not even be able to fish in those areas that could happen potentially so yeah that'd be terrible how bad is it for the bull trout they're not great. I mean, they're really, they need cold water. So climate change is not great for them. You know, they need clean, cold water. Uh, there's a stretch of river, the middle fork of the flathead where you actually can target them here in Montana. That okay. flows out of the Bob Marshall wilderness. Um, and, but no, they're in the, in the lower 48, they're not doing great. Um, up in Canada, there's places you can fish for them, um, but they're not doing good down here in the lower 48. There's only a few places that they actually are. Yeah. Yeah. I had a buddy up in Canada that was catching some monster bull trout. I'm like, that looks like a trip and a half. Totally. Yeah. yeah. They're, they're big fish. I've, I've only caught small ones. Um, and that's up in the middle fork. And I've seen big ones, uh, you know, up on the Blackfoot in particular. I've never seen a real big one up on Rock Creek, but I've seen them, you know, in these big pools and they look like, like gigantic sharks. Like their heads are different than a regular trout. And like, you know, they just look like predators, which they are. They're top of line predators. Oh yeah. Yeah. But land, you know, we're running down to the last few minutes. So I just yeah. wanted to say thank you so much for joining me. I had such a blast talking with you and learning so much about BHA and hopefully everyone else, you know, took away as much as I did. Chance, I appreciate the opportunity. Uh, the thing I will leave you with that you are participating in is like step into the arena, like have these conversations, get involved, and if we don't do it, nobody else will. And just remember that, like, like that saying, like we're either on the menu or we're at the table. Let's be at the table. We might not win them all. Let's be at the table. Thank you, man, for the opportunity. Thank you. I appreciate it. Yeah. You have a wonderful rest of your season and a good start to your year. Awesome. You as well, Chance. Thank you. Bye. See you, man. Bye.